There. Okay. So we're going to be talking tonight about obedience, which really, uh, after this morning's message, kind of tied in well with what Pastor Farrell was sharing this morning from Romans uh, 6, verse... uh, Actually, 14, verse 14. He dealt with obedience, and he said... uh, I'd have to go back and look at it. I don't have it memorized, but it did fit. Just take my word for it. Okay, so the the objective of our lesson tonight is to understand why obedience is central to a growing relationship with Christ, to help the students understand that obedience is not following a list of do's and don'ts, but rather knowing and serving Christ from your hearts. So, obedience flows from a thankful heart. Our love for Christ is the basis for our willingness to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. That's what Luke had to say in 923. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So it says obedience is flowing from the heart is the truth that a Christian has God's law written in his hearts, Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their mind and I will write them on their hearts. We could have tied this in last week with evangelism. It would have tied in very well, especially the 9.23. Now, if you were going to tell someone that you're witnessing to, and if you accept Christ, by the way, you need to take up your cross every day and follow after him. Doesn't sound very appealing, does it? I think that's where we came up with easy believism. It was a lot easier to tell people just accept Christ and you're good, you're good to go. Everything is fine. You're all, you're all in. We failed to tell them about what it meant to become a disciple. What was going to be involved in your life in order for that to take place and for order for that to, excuse me, for that to happen. So he's saying that you have to take up your cross daily and follow after him. Under the old covenant, the law was primarily external, but under the new covenant, the law is internal. And we saw that with the Pharisees. What was the very big problem with the Pharisees? Everything they did was on the outside. They had a special way to wash their hands. They had a special way to do this, a special way to do that. You had to adhere to all of it to the letter or you weren't right or something was wrong or it didn't work. And Jesus confronted them about that because he told them, you know, you're like a whitewashed sepulcher. You're nice and clean on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones because they'd never been redeemed. They had never been born again. They were never that new creature that they needed to be because everything that they did was on the outside for show, and they were trying to work their way into, a, into salvation. Since we have been freed from slavery to the law and have been made slaves of God, we are free to serve God with love and joy, not under compulsion. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, notice that I've got to capitalize it in, dark, in, in, in uh, bold letters. And believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 6.22 But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You cannot remove, you need to write this down someplace, make sure you get it, I think it's in the outline. You cannot remove lordship of Christ from the gospel message without undermining faith 
at its core. A lot of people don't like to talk about the lordship thing. It's, oh, yeah, I'm just, I've got Christ as my savior. He's my buddy. He's my best friend. He's my co-pilot. He's the one that just flies with me. He's the one that keeps me straight. No, that's not the way it works. He's Lord. He's going to be, has to be Lord of your life in order for that to take place. Now, there's some terms here that we need to understand. And if we're going to understand obedience, and we're going to have to, we needed them really last week to understand salvation completely, okay? The word Lord that's used here that we just had is the term for curios. I think I'm saying that right, which is Lord. It means someone who has power, ownership, and an unquestionable right to command. And a word that's very similar to it is the word despotes, or master. And it's also used, and it means a ruler with absolute power over his subjects. The English word despot is derived from this word. So we're not talking here about Jesus being just your best friend, but he's talking about Jesus being what? He's the master. He's the ruler. He's the owner. And you have to remember in, in New Testament times, slavery was very much a part of the economy of the Roman Empire. I said there one time there was as many as six million slaves in, in the city of Rome alone. And it was common for people to be bought and sold into slavery. And it was real slavery, okay? I'm not saying that it was right. I'm not saying it was wrong. One thing that you're going to find in Scripture is that never did Jesus address slavery. Paul didn't address slavery. He addressed slaves and slave owners on how they treated each other. There was never, you never find an abolitionist in anywhere in Scripture. Not that it's right or wrong, just didn't deal with it. But the concept of slavery falls into the plan of salvation very, very well because of the fact that Jesus has did what for you? He purchased us. We were slaves of what? You were a slave to sin. Who was your master? Satan was your master. He's the one who controls this world. He's the one who was the prince and the power of the air. He's the one that's here. And before you came to know Christ, he was in control of what's happening in your life and your sin. And he and you were you were a slave to that sin. When Jesus comes along, he pays the price for your sin. He buys you out of the slave market, and true, he sets you free, but he's still your owner. He bought you. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. So when you take that and you put it into, into the vernacular of salvation, he's purchasing you out of the slave market of sin, and he's put you into the kingdom of God, but he's still your master, and he's still your Lord. And because he's your Lord and he's your master, then we have an obligation to serve him and to obey him. The other uh, verb, the other uh, word that we need to have here is slave, which the Greek word was for a doulos, a slave. Now these are common terms used in the New Testament, common in the original language. This word refers to the lowest abject 
bond slave, a person who was literally owned by a master who could legally force him to work without wages. In other words, a person without standing or rights. His very life was in the hand of his owner. An owner, a slave owner, at biblical times, if he wasn't happy or you did something that he didn't like, he could actually take your life because you belonged to him. A slave, in most cases, had no more rights than an animal. That's how, that's how uh, complete their slavery was. It makes, this makes Matthew 6.24 make more sense. 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. And he goes on to say, for either you will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. Well, if you put that in today's, in today's vernacular, when people talk about, well, that has to do with your boss, or that has to do with your work situation. But then it doesn't make sense, does it? Have any of you ever had two jobs? Two jobs? How many have two jobs? I've had two jobs. Okay, you've had two jobs. Does that mean you had two masters? How, well, how, could, how can you serve one and not serve the other? What? You did. You served both of them equally, right? It didn't work for them. It didn't work for either one full time. Okay, that didn't matter. Well, you worked for them. Who was in charge? Boss. The boss was in charge. He had control over what you are going to do. He was the one who gave you your job. He's the one who pays your wages. He's the one who tells you to go here and do this or go there and do that and do something else. And then when you go to the other one, he's their master now. But when he's saying here in this particular passage, you can't have two masters if it's a slave, why would he not have two masters? Because he's owned rather than employed. Bingo! He's not an employee. He is a possession. That master owns him, and he's not going to share him with somebody else. He's not going to share his responsibilities. He's not going to share his services and whatever he does because that slave belongs to that owner. You see where this hulk starts to come together when you talk about salvation. Last week we talked about, uh, about evangelism and sharing Christ, and we used the example of Nicodemus. When Jesus approached Nicodemus, what did he tell him? You must be born again. And we said that being born again meant that Nicodemus had to do what? Remember? He had to forget everything that he had already practiced as a Pharisee. Everything he had under the old way of the law, all of his works, put them aside because now he needed to start all over again from point zero because everything that Christ was going to teach him was contrary to what he had already known. He had to start over as a child. I think we used, uh, we used their example they have a baby coming. When that baby comes and he's born, what can he do? Very little. He's dependent upon them for everything. How do children learn? If you were in uh, family life this morning, Jeff actually talked about that some at the end of the, at the end of our lesson. As parents, we're influencing our children, we're teaching them, instructing them, teaching them everything that they need to know. We are basically their master or their lord, and they are our servant. They are 
we tell them what to do. You tell them when to go to bed, you tell them when to get up. That's why I said if you're in the right kind of, I mean, if you're in a home where you're in control, you tell them to go to bed, when to get up, when to come to the dinner table, when to do their chores, when to get ready to go to school, all the things that they need to know, you're there to instruct them. That's kind of what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. You don't know anything, Nicodemus. You should have. You're a teacher of the Jews. You should have known, but you didn't. And you're following all this, and you're asking me this question. Now, you start all over again from point zero and start to learn. That's part of being a disciple maker. The other one we used an example of last week was the thief on the cross. He comes to know Christ as a Savior while he's hanging on the cross. He hasn't had time to be a disciple. Has he? But yet he ends up in heaven. But he had to start over. <laughs> he had to leave what he was doing and trust Christ. And we had the funny story that went with it when he got to heaven, you know. And why are you here? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it all came down to the guy on the middle cross said I could come. He had come to know Christ as a Savior. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You have been bought with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Someone look up Romans 14, 7 through 9, if you would, please, and read it. You got your Bible? Yeah, you got it there? 14, 7 through 9? 7 through 9, yes. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And he is... Lord. That was all through there. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Slavery exemplifies the very features of redemption. We are chosen. We are bought. We are owned by our master. We're subject to the master's will and control, totally dependent on the master. We will ultimately be called to account evaluated and either chastened or rewarded by him. Much the same as it was for a slave. He didn't have any will of his own. He had to do what the master had given him. A master has chosen him in the slave market. He bought him, paid for him. He's owned by that master. He's subject to the master's will and control, and he's totally dependent on the master for all of his supply and all of his needs comes from him. And that's where we are in our relationship with Christ. We have to be totally, completely dependent upon him for everything in our lives. Matthew 22, 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And they'd come to Jesus, the Pharisees did, and they said, What is the greatest commandment? And this is what he gave them is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like unto it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
Well, what does he mean by love? Well, love is an act of the mind and will. It's determined to care for the welfare of something or someone. It might include strong emotions, but it's distinguished by dedication and commitment to choice. That's a great definition of love. We have, in our lives, we have too much hallmark love and not enough biblical love. Our, our minds get a little off track on what God really meant by love. And this, this is the love he's talking about here when he said, you shall love the Lord your God. Heart. Here's the core, refers to the core of one's personal being, what you are, what's going on, what you are in your life. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What do we have to be careful with with our hearts? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Back to the Hallmark movies. What does mom always tell the daughter when she wasn't sure what to do? Just follow your heart. It'll lead you right straight to destruction. (laughs) Oh, she never says that. Why not? Because it's Hallmark and everything comes out all right anyway, right? Everybody lives happily ever after. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. We are to guard our hearts. Much like what Paul, what Pastor was talking about this morning in this passage in Romans. It's, it's not giving yourselves any more to sin, but it's the disciplining your life against sin and allowing God to change you. Your soul refers to our emotions. Even Jesus cried out in the garden and said, my soul is deeply grieved. Grief and emotion, sadness, sorrow, they're all a part of who we are. It's a part of what you are as a human. God created that for you. It's a way of expressing the things that go on inside of you. So he told them that they needed to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, and soul. Your mind, your intellect, willful vigor and determination carries both the meaning of mental endeavor and of strength. It's what you think with. It's your mind. And closely sometimes related to your heart. Because you give all of your heart, soul, and mind. So you're giving all of that to God. God needs to be in control of all of those John MacArthur said that genuine love of the Lord is intelligent, feeling, willing, and serving. It involves thought, sensitivity, intent, and even action where that is possible and appropriate. God has never sought either empty words or empty rituals. His desire is for the person himself, not simply for what the person possesses. If he truly has the person, he inevitably has all that that person possesses as well.
Okay, let's see. Luke 9.23, again. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Closely related to that is Romans 12.1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When we're talking about self-denial, the real issue is obedience. Am I going to obey? It is not legalism or self-righteousness. Rather than making a list of do's and don'ts, we need to give our hearts to God and seek after those things which are above. We don't like to deny ourselves. <coughs> why, why do we sin? Says, by our own lust, our own desires, the desires of the heart. And in our subconscious, we think that sin is going to bring us pleasure, right? So, again, going back to what Pastor was talking about this morning, there's a denying of yourself, denying of that desire that's in you, saying, no, I am not going to do that. And when you, I think he said, if you're going to, I wrote it down, but I don't have that with me. Well, I do have it with me. I don't, I don't have time to look it up. <coughs> it's a problem getting old. You may be presidential material. I could be, yes. That's true. That's true. I never thought about that, Rick. Anyway, that if you're going to deny sin, you're going to, not, you're going to resist sin then you need to replace that with something else. You need to replace it with scripture. You need to replace it with something to do with put off, put on. Put off, put on. There you go. Thank you. Wow, that's amazing. See why I have her? That's where, where your mind is. Put off, put on. It's kind of like back in the old Karate Kid days. What did he say? Wax on. <laughs> Wax off. Wax on, wax off. What was the name of that movie? Karate Kid. It was in black and white. It did have sound. but So we can say you put off and you put on. When you put off an area of temptation, you have to put on something from Scripture that's going to keep you from that. What did David say? Thy word have I hid in my heart, which is in your mind and your heart, that I might not sin against you. David realized that it wasn't going to be something he could do on his own. It wasn't something he could do by himself. He had to have God's help and assistance to be able to obey the word of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. I think 1 John actually talks about that. Love not the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not of God, but they're of the world. So we're supposed to set our minds on the things that are above. The more we read and the more we pray, the more we learn about God. The more we learn about him, the more we love him and want to obey him. So if we're having a struggle in that area, what's probably our problem? If 
your love for God isn't as deep as it should be, I guess that's a word for it, it's because we're not spending enough time learning about him. We, we actually had a conversation on the way home this morning about love. And we got married really young, really young. <laughs> so we were 19 in Dumber Than Dirt. And then God blessed us with three kids within the first five years and didn't send an owner's manual with one of them, not a one of them. So we were on our own. Well, I said we had kids early and we all grew up together. And it basically it was true. But someplace along the line, as we got to discover who each other was and all of our weaknesses and our anomalies or whatever you want, God helped us work through that. And I remember an, an old gospel song that the Cathars did, and they were talking about Noah and the ark. And he took with him the woman that he learned to love. I don't know why that stuck with me, but it did. But it's true. In a marriage, you learn to love the other person. You may have thought you loved them when you, when you met them. You may have thought you loved them when you married them. But it is nothing compared to the love you're going to have to develop if you're going to stay together for 58 years and continue to get stronger in that marriage. It's because you're training the time with that person to get to know them and to know how they think and to know how, what makes them happy and what makes them sad. As men, if we don't learn how to make, figure out what makes them happy and what makes them sad, you're going to have a really, really miserable life. Because when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. I don't care where your house is, it's the truth. Now, where were we? Self-denial, the real issue is obedience. It's not legalism and self-righteousness rather than making a list of do's and don'ts. And don't get me wrong, there's some things we should do and there's some things we shouldn't do. And it's not wrong to have do's and don'ts. They should not be the primary focus of our lives. We need to give our hearts to God and seek after the things that are above. Will we fail? <laughs> All of us fall short in our obedience to God. James 3.2a, for we all stumble in many ways. The Apostle Paul experienced this in Romans 7. But like Paul, we should pursue denying ourselves, as Luke 9.23 says, and offer our lives to God in Romans 12.1. The offering of God in Romans 12.1 is not an easy thing, is it? To place yourself on that altar and say, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you, Lord, and to be that living sacrifice. A person's love for God is a mark of true salvation. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Can somebody read that, please? 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
For whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. For this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, let himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Amen. We are to walk in light of the truth. And it's a, it's a witness of our salvation. Those who know Christ will love him and obey his word. Uh, I don't remember the reference, but I've always known the verse. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's keeping his commandments? It's obedience. It's obedience at the base level. Real faith, saving faith is all of me, mind, emotions, and will, embracing all of him, that's the Lord, Savior, Advocate, Provider, Sustainer, Counselor, and Lord God. Those who have such faith will love Christ. Obedience must come from a joyful heart that flows from our love for Christ. We obey because we want to, not because we have to. Today's casual, casual approach to obedience has to do with the lie that it's possible to disobey without experiencing consequences. Much of our current culture practices lifestyle, practicing lifestyle is denying the reality of consequences. I ask the question then, does anybody really get away with sin? No, they don't. And we do live in a society now that doesn't look at consequences. I don't know how many of you follow any kind of a news service, but hardly a day goes by when they're not today reporting mass shootings. People just killing people. We've had it in Lynchburg, you know. Drive-by shooting kills a six-year-old. You think in your mind it doesn't make any sense. Why would people do that? Well, part of it is because they don't face a consequence. They don't think they're going to face a consequence. We've raised up at least one or two generations that are trained in electronic killing, spending hours and hours behind a computer screen, killing off this, killing off that. The next day they turn it back on. The same people they killed yesterday are back there. You're putting a subliminal message in their mind that it's okay. I can kill people because, well, they'll be back tomorrow. But when you pull that trigger, it's, they're not back tomorrow. They're gone forever. And your life has just gone down the tubes because of the lack of consequence. They don't see the consequence that's going to come because of the actions that they decide to do. We don't think about the consequences. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you've got your Bibles here, I want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. These are familiar stories, but it's well worth... Um, Reviewing. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, um, Samuel has, has anointed Saul as king over Israel. And Saul has now taken his position, and he's been anointed, and he's got his, he's got his army, and he's gone off to do battle. 
And in 15, Samuel had given him instructions. Instructions came from God. They were going to attack the Amalekites, and they were supposed to destroy the Amalekites completely. Man, woman, child, king, sheep, oxen, anything that belonged to the Amalekites was to be destroyed. So he goes off to take care of what God has called him to do. And Samuel comes to visit him. And when he came to visit him, he says, uh, let's see, where do we want to start? Uh, um, Let's start in verse 7. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. And they were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and wanted, unwanted things. See where this is going? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul. But it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. And when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out this Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them for the Amalekites from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Now I want you to notice something that that Saul said. He didn't say they saved the best of the cattle, sheep, and oxen to serve to sacrifice to the Lord my God, but to the Lord your God, to Samuel's God, not to Saul's God. He had a wrong. He already knew he was wrong, and he wasn't going to try to get himself deeper. Verse 16. I can just about hear Samuel. Stop! Right there. Saul, don't go any farther, okay? Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel and sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
Saul tries to defend himself. But I did obey the Lord, Samuel answered. I went on a mission, on the mission that the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle for the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Notice again, who did Saul blame? Huh? The people, his troops. Oh, I didn't, I didn't take them. It's, it's my people that took them. Well, who's in charge? I don't know. I've never, I, I didn't serve in any of the armed forces. They didn't want me. They, I, I tried, but they didn't want me. So this is my first rejection in life. But if you're in the armed services, do you just do anything you want to do? Rick, you were in the Army, right? Uh, Air Force. Air Force. Well, that was a little more sissy side, but anyway, what? <laughs> you still had to do what you were told. You still had to do what you were told. That's right. You didn't just go out and, and uh, change air in an airplane tire, right, on your own. You had to have somebody tell you to go do that, right? So here he is. He's blaming his troops for bringing this, but yet who's in charge? Samuel's in charge, or uh, Saul's in charge. They shouldn't not have been able to do that if he didn't give them permission to do it. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obeying the Lord? Look, it is better than sacrifice to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel's disobedience disobedience didn't go unpunished. There was a consequence for what he had done. He lost his kingdom. Samuel had gone on and told him if he would have obeyed, his kingdom would have been established, but it wasn't. It was torn away from him. And David was going to be the one who was destined to be the king because God wanted a king who was after his own heart, somebody that thought the way he thought, that was willing to obey God and his commands and do what he commanded them to do. That was obedience. There is a consequence when we fail to Trust the Lord. You can go through the book of Samuel. It happened to be where my reading was this morning. And it fit in with everything else that we were talking about. Um, for, For the whole thing with obedience. Obedience flows out of a heart that loves God. When... When we're raising our children and we want them to obey, why do we want them to obey? So they don't make us angry? Or doesn't frustrate us? Why do we want them to obey? What does it demonstrate when they obey us? That they love us, right? We want them to obey because they love us, not because they're afraid of us. 
or not because just because they're afraid of the consequences if they don't, but because they have a deep-seated love for us and they want to please us. And we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all of our might because we love him so much we don't want to disappoint him. When you think about all that God has done for you, and I think Pastor mentioned that this morning, if you really want to get a genuine love for him, then go through the scriptures and just look at all the things that Christ has done for you. All of the things he's done for anyone who's come to him is, is in, uh, in repentance and taking him as their savior. And it will start to build within you a love for him, for his word, and for what he's done. And it will wake you then to want to obey the things that he's commanded us in his word. But if, if you're not in the word, then you're not going to ever know what the commandments are that he's commanded us. The word is vital. The, the word is critical to anything we're going to have in our Christian life. It's what causes us to grow. It's what we feed on. It's the place we turn when things aren't going so awful pretty good. And it's an encouragement. Uh, pastor has encouraged us, the men in here, I think you've probably heard him many times in Grace and Granite, say that every morning he reads five psalms. Today was the seventh. So he would have read Psalm 7, 37, 67, 97, and 127. Tomorrow, Psalm 8, Psalm 20, or 38, Psalm 68, 98, 128. And every month you will read through this book of Psalms. And it's, it's a, I've been doing it for the last several weeks. I finally took the challenge. After how many years we've been in Grace and Grant and he's been saying that, I, I thought he was crazy. I thought, that's never going to work. But it does. And because the Psalms are so varied, in the way that they're written, and in, the, in the subjects that they cover, you may go from wanting to destroy your enemies, asking God to destroy those that are persecuting you, those that are, that are your enemies, to praising God for all of his creation, for everything he's put together, and then praising him for the salvation that he's provided for you. It, it covers the whole gamut of life in the book of Psalms. And I would encourage you to try that. Just, just try it for a month and see where it takes you and see what happens. Okay, that was the end of my presentation, so I guess I'm done. So let's pray. We're going to be done a little bit early, and you can have a little time to fellowship. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word and how it, uh, how it feeds us. Help us, Father, to be students of that word, to devour it every day, to have a desire to know you better and to dig into that word and allow it to mold us, to shape us, to change us, to transform us. Um, your word is quick and it's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit. It divides joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So, Father, help us to pray it every day that you might bring to the surface the things that need to be confessed and repented of and to keep us in a right relationship with you. Bless us as we go to our homes tonight, Father, and we'll praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen.